Thank you for joining us. We hope you're all doing well. In this episode, we chat with Professor Joe Badcock, a psychologist and researcher from the School of Psychological Science at the University of Western Australia and the Perth Voices Clinic. Professor Badcock's work focuses on people who hear voices, also known as auditory hallucinations, with a particular focus on how this group is impacted by loneliness. Our conversation includes the discussion about the work that the Perth Voices Clinic does to assist people hearing voices, both by providing treatment and conducting research. We also discuss how loneliness and social isolation differ and how COVID-19 may exacerbate these problems. Professor Badcock also talks us through how COVID-19 has changed the way Perth Voices Clinic provides treatment to its clients. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Meaning of Health. I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're very lucky this week to be talking with Professor Joe Badcock. Hello, Joe. Hi there. Joe, would you like to introduce yourself and let people know where you are working and what you're doing at the moment? Sure. Well, I'm Joe Badcock and I am an adjunct professor in the School of Psychological Science at UWA. And I'm also research director for Perth Voices Clinic, which I can tell you all about in a little while. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, with a third hat on, vice chairperson of the newly established Australian initiative called Ending Loneliness Together, which is um, a group of organisations that have come together across the country to help tackle the big problem that we now understand about high levels of loneliness in the Australian community. Interesting. Okay. Now, just before we kind of get talking about specifically some of the things you're involved in, your work straddles two kind of separate areas, but that are quite closely related in terms of psychiatry and psychology, doesn't it? Yes, it is. I'm, I am a psychologist by training. Um, I, my undergraduate degree is in experimental psychology. I'm a registered clinical psychologist. I did my clinical training in Melbourne, followed by a PhD in psychology at Melbourne. So I am very much a psychologist at heart, um, but nonetheless, the areas that I've been interested in would, would typically be considered to straddle psychiatry psychology and the clinical um, psychosis arena in particular. So trying to get to understand um, the nature of schizophrenia and related psychotic disorders, um, some of the cognitive, social, the emotional processes that contribute to the experience of psychosis okay and so what just for people who might not be fully aware of the distinction between psychology and psychiatry how would you best describe that uh well psychiatrists have of course undertaken a medical training and then gone on to specialize in psychiatry as a a mental health um, focus whereas psychologists have typically done undergraduate training followed by postgraduate training entirely in psychology, including both normal psychological processes and abnormal psychological functioning. um, Joe, why did you decide to go into psychology in the first place and then in particular uh, schizophrenia and psychosis? You know, since you first contacted me about this, I've reflected on that decision. (laughs) I have to say, right back in school, I really thought that I was going to study geography 
that was my my passion and, and my real focus of interest. Um, how did it change? I think, like many young people, I was captivated with trying to understand what makes people tick. Why do they behave the way they do? And what are the causes of the common mental disorders that we see? And perhaps on that inspiration alone, I then decided rather than doing geography at university, I'd switch and do psychology. So I think that probably is an indicator of a broader issue that how we end up doing the kind of research that we do is often not just a linear journey. There's all sorts of strange influences that we pick up along the way that shove us in different directions. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, no, there's no one path, is there? No, there's not. And sometimes it can be as simple as a coincidental conversation with someone that you meet at a conference or at home and you have a conversation that challenges you on a particular area and you think, hmm, I wonder how that relates to the research I'm doing at the moment. And again, off in a, in a new and exciting direction <laughs> for your work. <laughs> okay, so I guess that's uh, probably a good place for us to, to have a chat a bit about some of the things that you're specifically involved in. And when I sure. first saw the Perth Voices Clinic, I thought maybe it was a singing school, but obviously that's not, <laughs> yep. not true. Um, so, yeah, do you want to tell us a bit more about the Perth Voices Clinic and what it is and how you're involved there? Sure. So the clinic was established um, a couple of years ago now, actually in 2016. Um, and I have to say at this point, I was having the great pleasure of um, a past graduate student of mine having a reconnection with her and chatting to her about what she was currently doing. And the further we chatted, I thought, you know, it would be really good if you could apply the skills that you've developed over the last few years and start a Voices Clinic. So what is a Voices Clinic? Well, it's a psychological treatment service for people who have hallucinatory experiences. So they're surprisingly common. We have the stereotype still often from watching things on TV or in the movies, but people with hallucinations are psychotic. They have a schizophrenia disorder or they have a related psychotic disorder. We now know that that's simply not the case. We know that hallucinations occur across a broad range of diagnostic categories. So they can happen in people with Parkinson's disease, in people with Alzheimer's disease. They can occur in people post-traumatic stress disorder, in people with depression. And curiously, they can also occur in people with no diagnosis at all. They occur in healthy individuals in the general community. So what are hallucinations, I hear, is the next question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely it is. So hallucinations are actually surprisingly tricky to define. One of the easiest ways of, of describing them is that they're a perceptual life experience that occurs with the clarity and the impact of a true perception, that they happen without a, a corresponding external stimulus being present. So essentially it's a perception in the absence of an external stimulus. So normally when we perceive things in the environment, so I can look across the table here and I see a cup, 
and the cup is actually present in the outside world. Hallucinations are perceptions that occur without that corresponding stimulus being present in the external world. Mm. Hallucinations are really complex and fascinating experience. And it's really interesting to know about that group in the general community who have these experiences, but in the absence of any other diagnosis. That group often have hallucinatory experiences, but they cause no distress and no disruption to their daily life. And in fact, sometimes they're described as providing a source of curiosity and interest and it's a real strength to their experience of the world. Mm. So what we're really charged now with in terms of research is finding out why do some people have hallucinations that cause such problem and yet others don't. Mm. So okay. the purpose the purpose of the clinic then coming back to the to the clinic is we established the clinic to try and first of all provide a psychological service for people who have distressing hallucinations. We've also built into that now a research component and I serve as the research director for the clinic so that we're working towards getting a better understanding of what causes hallucinations, why some people find them more distressing than others. And then the third arm to the clinic is we have a teaching component. It's really important to be able to bring on the next generation of mental health researchers and especially psychologists who can work with this client group, given they're so diverse and their needs are so diverse, so that they can gain experience in this space and they can go out and help such a wide range of people that they will come across in their clinical practice with these experiences. Okay, and what kind of um, treatments are there for hallucinations? Yeah. Yep. So again, this highlights that distinction between um, sort of psychiatry approach and the psychology approach. Um, in psychiatry, um, a patient who comes in with hallucinations, say they in the context of schizophrenia, they would often receive antipsychotic medication. And indeed, that's a, often a very helpful approach to take. From a psychologist's point of view, however, we take a slightly different stance. As psychologists, we don't have prescribing rights. And so our approach is based on changing the way people behave in response to their hallucinations and also changing their way of thinking about those hallucinations so as to help reduce the, the level of distress that they experience around that. Interesting. So they're psychological therapies, talking therapies, behavioural therapies. Mm, okay. And I feel like uh, psych psychosis and hallucinations is something that the general community are not very well educated on because when I've encountered it in my research um, in the prison population and in the homeless community, there's this kind of fear of people who have these experiences and, and they're almost marginalised instantly by people who don't know any better. Absolutely. Um, and I think some of the stuff we're going to talk about with you today probably relates to that in terms of how people's social lives are impacted as a result. Um, uh, absolutely, yes. I couldn't agree more. There's a great deal of stereotyping, negative stereotyping about people with psychotic disorders and psychotic symptoms 
like hallucinations. And again, yeah. that's why we felt so strongly about having a teaching component to the Perth Voices Clinic to help address some of those stereotypes, to help begin the change in how people understand what that experience is all about. Mm-hmm. And, and so how does that work feed into what you do with the Ending Loneliness Together initiative? <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a bit of a leap, um, but... Um, what we have discovered through research is that people with psychotic disorders also experience very high rates of loneliness. So this involves some of the work that I've done with Vera Morgan, who's down in the School of Population Health. Mm-hmm. And through the um, second Australian National Survey of Psychosis, we evaluated um, how common the experience of loneliness was in people with psychotic disorders. And what we found there was that people with schizophrenia and delusional disorders, which is another kind of psychotic disorder, were experiencing um, rates around 70% of them were, were saying that they were very lonely. and They had been lonely over the last 12 months. When we looked then at people with a depressive kind of psychosis, we found that it was almost all of them were recording, um, reporting feelings of loneliness and, and frequent loneliness. In comparison, similar studies in the general community suggest that about 35% of the general community report loneliness. So what what we're gauging there is that people with psychotic disorders are about twice as likely to be having these feelings of loneliness that are persistent and occurring over long periods of time. So that helps to provide the connection with why my research started to then look at the impact between loneliness, psychosis and psychotic symptoms. Mm -hmm. Okay. So loneliness is really a key um, area of focus currently for you, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I guess we could move on to maybe discussing a couple of specific papers that you've done. Sure. Um, so the first one I wanted to talk about is the loneliness and psychotic illness and its association with cardiometabolic disorders paper. Yeah. And there's obviously a couple of questions about defining what loneliness is and what yep. metabolic disorders or metabolic syndromes are. Do you just want to sure. start there? Yep, yep. So loneliness is a distressing feeling. It's a subjective experience. It's the feeling that we are socially isolated, we're disconnected from others, and that our social relationships are not meeting our needs. So it's very much a subjective experience. And why I emphasise that is that loneliness and the word social isolation those terms are often used interchangeably, but actually they refer to slightly different things. Social isolation in and of itself is an objective experience. It talks about the number and types of social contacts that we have in an objective sense. We know that social isolation and loneliness are slightly different because people report that they can be living alone have very few contacts and yet not feel lonely. 
Similarly, we have people who tell us that they are married or they have a partner and they've got lots and lots of social contacts, lots of friends, lots of people they connect with in their social world, and yet they feel lonely. So the two are similar but not identical. So that's the first step, is understanding the distinction between loneliness as a feeling, subjective state, versus social isolation, which is an objective state. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then um, you were looking at the association between loneliness in people who have psychotic illness and metabolic disorders or metabolic that's syndromes. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So the metabolic disorders... Um, metabolic syndrome, they refer to a cluster of conditions that increase a person's risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. There are several components to this cluster. They include things like high blood pressure, um, high blood sugars, so fasting blood sugars, increase in waist size, abnormal levels of cholesterol, and high levels of triglycerides, which are a kind of fat that occurs in the blood. The presence of metabolic syndrome is based on the presence of three or more of those five um, variables, and they increase the risk of things like heart disease, stroke, and diabetes. So again, what we know is that people with psychotic disorders have very poor physical health, surprisingly, because um, we, we just tend to think of it as solely a mental health problem. But actually, people with psychotic disorders have lots of physical health And one in particular is high rates of the presence of metabolic syndrome. So again, work that Vera has done and others suggests that maybe around 60% of people with psychosis have metabolic syndrome. So it's become a key focus for treatment because obviously what we want to do is trying to intervene early to help improve their physical health outcomes um, because sadly we do know also that people with psychosis tend to die a lot earlier, and I mean a lot earlier than people in the general community without psychosis. Mm. So okay. do we know why people with psychotic illness have increased levels of cardiometabolic disorders? Do we, do we have any theories as to why? Yeah, yeah, we, we do. It, but as is often the case in this space, there's no clear answer. It probably relates in part to things like poor diet, low levels of physical activity, and the kind of medications that people with psychotic disorders are taking. But it might also be somehow a more inherent feature of the disorder itself, and that's where there's a lot of hesitation. We don't quite know what the full story is there. But what we now know, on based on the research that we did looking at the relationship between loneliness and metabolic syndrome in people with psychotic disorders, is that loneliness also adds to this poor profile about metabolic syndrome. In other words, loneliness, if it's present, increases the risk that metabolic syndrome will be present. So now we have two targets. We have potential that we can intervene directly on the presence of metabolic syndrome, but also we could intervene to help reduce the levels of loneliness in this patient population, and that might help to lead to better physical health outcomes. Mm. 
And if you okay, so so you're saying before that loneliness, you know, it's not the same as social isolation, uh, social isolation. Um, yes. <laughs> in that you can have lots of connections and lots of friends and still be lonely. Yes. If if loneliness is a potential target to to reduce that feeling in order to improve those long term uh, goals, how do you reduce loneliness when it's very subjective? <laughs> well, again, this is where you come back to having the psychologist hat on, and what we have seen is the development of cognitive behavioural therapies that help to change maladaptive thinking, unhelpful thinking patterns that can help people to restore a stronger sense of connection with other people. But it, it very much involves changing the way you think about your social relationships, um, not necessarily changing the number of social contacts that you have. Okay. Uh, so is the idea that if you change somebody's processing of what's going on around them and how they think and uh, mm -hmm. process that, that that could leave, lead to them changing their behaviour as well? Yes, right. that, that's correct, yes. Okay. And that, this, and this, a... this is all, again, fairly early stage research and it is partly one of the things that we'd like to encourage through the Ending Loneliness Together initiative is for there to be far more research on the kind of treatment approaches that could be used to help people with loneliness in the community because the different kinds of interventions are likely to be required for different groups of people. So the kind of cognitive behavioural therapy required for people with psychosis might be slightly different than, say, if you're working with um, older adults who are feeling lonely, but they don't have a psychotic experience. Okay. So one of the things, one of the goals that we want to do with Ending Loneliness Together is encourage more research so that we have a strong evidence base to support the work that, that's happening out there in the field. And who are some of your partners in that around Australia? So uh, the key partner is Swinburne University. Uh, Dr Michelle Lim at the Swinburne in, uh, University has been leading the initiative overall and her work also has been very much in the area of uh, psychosis, although principally involving developing um, cognitive behavioural therapies for younger people with the first onset or in the earlier stages of, of psychosis. Um, along with that, we have community partners, including Relationships Australia. We have Way Ahead, which is the Mental Health Association in New South Wales. Um, we have uh, the Widden Group, which is part of a, a retirement care group, um, Uniting Care Australia. So we, we're getting more and more interest as we go along. But they're some of the, the founding partners, if you like. Mm -hmm. And is, is it uh, right to assume that this is going to lead to some sort of trials being conducted? or uh, We would hope so. Um, but actually what's also really clear is that there's lots of community organisations out there who are already undertaking different kinds of programs to help tackle loneliness in their local and one of the things that we're discovering is that how they're going about doing that is really very different, not surprisingly, but they're also asking for help. They want, they want more resources. They want to know how to assess loneliness and how to evaluate whether their programs work or not. So, again, one of the, the goals of the coalition 
is to help provide those sorts of resources and also help to connect these different community organisations so that you can learn from one another about what works best, mm-hmm. what works best for whom, <laughs> yeah. um, and under what conditions. And is it too early to provide one or two recommendations at this stage for things that have been shown to be helpful so far? It's probably a bit too early um, other than to say it is the case that changing your thinking is key. Um, One of the strong directions that's been taken with the UK campaign to end loneliness, for example, has been the notion of social prescribing and not, not got anything against social prescribing in and of itself. But what social prescribing does is help connect people to groups and that can be really beneficial in other ways. Mm -hmm. But it is essentially about changing the number of social connections that you have, which is really therefore addressing social isolation Mm -hmm. and not necessarily changing your thinking about relationships. So that would really only address one portion of the people that feel lonely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it may well be that when we really get to the bottom of the research on this, that doing both together might well be the best way to go. So we're Mm -hmm. certainly open to that possibility, but you do have to be mindful that just as simply assuming that by introducing the presence of another person will necessarily fix your feeling of loneliness, that's a big assumption that we need to be very cautious about. Yeah, it sounds like a very individual and personal thing in each case. So some people might be anxious about having too many people in their lives. They might be more comfortable with fewer people but more quality kind of relationships. Quite right, absolutely. And it's about understanding each person's unique experience of loneliness that is is going to be key. Mm. Yeah. That's really helpful to to know because that's obviously something I didn't know before this conversation, that distinction between social isolation and loneliness to that extent. Mm. Yeah, very good. Um, so a, a different aspect of your research is is looking at uh, treatment outcomes for distressing voices in yes. routine clinical practice and how you assess whether or not the treatment outcomes have been clinically significant. And I, I, as a public health researcher... We do a lot of biostatistics and we yes. talk about statistically significant findings all the time. Yeah. Do, do you want to just explain what the difference between clinical and statistical difference is? Sure. So statistical significance is usually referring to whether a result is unlikely to have occurred by chance. But what it doesn't tell you about is whether that result is practically going to make a difference in the real world. Mm -hmm. In a clinical setting, um, what we're often interested in as a result is a difference. So, for example, you have someone come to the clinic, say it's our birth voices clinic, they have hallucinations, and they want help to treat the distress around that. So we'll assess them at the beginning before they've undertaken therapy, and then we'll assess them at the end to see whether there's a difference. Has the treatment helped? If you take the standard statistical significance route, you might find a statistical difference. But what we really want to know for the individual person concerned is, has it led to, has the treatment led to the person feeling improved? 
Had they actually even recovered or not? That's, that's what they really need to know. And you don't get that from standard statistical significance um, approaches to, to how you analyse the information, how you analyse the data. Mm-hmm. So there are different methods that you can use to help get to the heart of the clinically significant difference. And why that's important is, is very varied again. So, for example, if you have a person who's come in and you find that they have um, re- improved to the point where they could be classed as recovered, then it's important that they get that feedback for a start, but also that they then can move on to what the next stage of their recovery journey so that others can enter the service uh, so that they can get treatment. So if we carry on treating people who are already recovered, um, we're kind of holding up the availability of a service for somebody else who really needs help. So that's one example. As another example, you have someone who comes into the clinic and they have improved but not yet recovered. Then we can say, okay, this is how much change has happened, but it might be beneficial for you to stay on in the service so that you can get more treatment, so that you can get to a a more advanced stage of recovery. So providing that more nuanced approach to clinical improvement is very much helpful for the individual and for the service because we do know that services are in short supply, right, for these Mm -hmm. people with these sorts of experiences. Okay. So it seems that you... You're wanting to come up with tools that can help people measure this to see if there is a, a clinically meaningful difference in, in people's yes. outcomes. So there's a couple of aspects to that. One is that the tool's accurate. And yes. two, it's a tool that can be administered by someone working in that job ordinarily. So not not a researcher with a advanced understanding of statistics, but someone who can just deliver the tool fairly easily. Yep. Yeah. So So that that was one of the, the goals of, of the paper that that you're referring to and and so we did indeed provide a tool that will be very easy for clinicians who work in this area to use. They simply enter their client's data and the results are automatically generated for them. The clinicians in this area do have training in clinical significance methods but it's still a little bit time consuming for them to generate this information for themselves so we kind of provided the middle steps for them and created a tool whereby they can just use their own client data for individual clients and the tool will automatically tell them whether your client has improved um, recovered remains unchanged or possibly deteriorated mm-hmm. and is this for specific treatments this is specifically for people who come in for treatment for distressing voices. So mm-hmm. there are other clinics around the world and in Australia that are now specifically set up to address this key symptom because it is so common across so many different groups. And, and is the outcome of interest a level of distress primarily? It's primarily the level of distress. When most clients come to see us, that is the thing that they identify themselves that they would like help with, which is interesting really because um, medical approaches and indeed the broader research approach has tended to 
think or assume that people with hallucinations simply want to abolish the experience altogether, that they simply want to get rid of the experience. But actually, that doesn't seem to be necessarily the case for a lot of people who come in. They don't mind the hallucination being present, but to get them hints that, that they get some positive experience from the hallucinations under certain circumstances, what they do want, though, is for it to be not a distressing experience. So when they learn how to think differently about this experience and control their distress, they're quite okay with the hallucinations still happening. But again, all of that has to be couched in terms of everybody's experience is different. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what was the name of the tool that, that was used during the study? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. I think, <laughs> I think we just called it the uh, reliable change calculator because that, mm -hmm. that's terminology that <laughs> clinicians in this space will, will understand. Yeah, and is that likely to be widely available now? Or We, we posted that on uh, what's called the Open Science Framework. Uh, we're very much dedicated to public access and public availability and we wanted this tool to be freely available. So it is posted and freely available on the Open Science Framework. Okay. So does it, can we assume then that the, the findings of the research were that this tool was pretty reliable for this purpose? The, certainly our, our study, which provides the preliminary analysis, is that it is a valid and reliable tool to use. Um, mm -hmm. As with all research, however, of course, it'll need, it'll need further examination and interrogation, as it should, yeah. um, because that's how science evolves. Just a, a quick question on the prevalence of uh, hallucinations and hearing voices in the population generally, because it's something I didn't ask at the start. Well, what is yes. the, how, what percentage of, of the general population do have these experiences? Okay, so in if you would like to call it the, the healthy or non-clinical group within the general community, estimates vary, but it seems to be around 25% of people in the general population will experience hallucinations. It varies a little bit across age groups. So we do know it's far more common in younger people, children and adolescents in particular, and then tends to drop off over age. So by the time you get to older age groups, it's around maybe 5% of the general community um, will experience these perceptions as well, um, mm -hmm. perceptions. Um, oh, there was something else I was going to. Oh, oh, the the. Uh, sorry, had a blind spot there. It's the right. other issue that um, is worth thinking about is that those prevalence rates vary for different modalities of hallucinations. And what do I mean by that? I mean, depending on whether it's an auditory hallucination or a visual hallucination. Mm. or an hallucination in the other sense modalities because we do get hallucinations of smell, of touch, of taste and so on. Mm -hmm. So all these prevalence figures also vary depending mm. on which modality we're talking about. And just to clarify, sorry, Courtney. Um, you go, Craig. <laughs> uh, these are hallucinations that haven't been stimulated by some external Stimulus like a like drug, drug use or a, a distressing. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Event. These okay. are hallucinations occurring um, 
we're not even typically referring to those hallucinatory experiences on the borders of sleep, which are also common. Um, they're not drug-induced. They're not due to alcohol. They just seem to arise in the absence of an external stimulus. So back to the whole distress idea as well, I, I think a lot of people tend to think that hallucinations, all of them will be stressful and, and cause pain and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But I was just, I was thinking of an example mainly because I think I'm hungry at the, this moment. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess, like, it, it makes sense to me that you would have some hallucinations that aren't distressful. Like, for example, you could have a taste one where you suddenly taste like uh, taste chocolate, and you know that that's not going to be distressful. Um, in fact, I think that would be quite nice. Um, so yes, yes, yeah. that, that's true. There's a, there's a range, and and as I said before, whether distress is present or not seems to be particularly important. So if it's distressing, and if it's persistent, then it's much more likely to be associated with the need for help the need for mental health help so then how if it's not distressing and it's and it's transient yeah. then it's it's likely to be something that will just come and go and it won't particularly be a cause of concern so then the tool that you're talking about that has <clears throat> distress as the outcome um how how do you measure that distress because again i feel like it's very subjective it is absolutely so there there are uh, well validated clinical interview tools that can be used and are regularly used in clinics like ours to examine the experience um, on a number of factors, including distress, including frequency, including how you interpret the experience and how much it disrupts your daily life. So there are well-validated interview tools that can be used for that purpose. Just pick up something else that you were talking about there, though, in terms of the prevalence of these experiences and how distressing they are. Another group where these experiences very commonly occur are in people who have had someone close to them die, that is the bereavement hallucinations. Some of the fascinating work that's being done in that space at the moment suggests that they may be far more common than we have ever really previously recognised or understood. Some of the literature coming out in that area suggests that maybe as many as 60% of people who have had someone close to them die will have that sense of uh, a bereavement hallucination. So they will sense that someone that they love who has died will be present in the room, sometimes nearby, and that can sometimes be associated with quite a positive feeling of connection, ongoing bond with that person though sometimes it can also become, again, if it lasts too long, it can be quite distressing and, again, can eventually be something that people need a bit of help with. Mm. That's, that's really useful to know as well. Um, yeah, just As I said, hallucinations are just a fascinating oh, so experience. They're yeah. just part of our world in far more ways than had ever previously been. Yeah. I think it's important work and, and as widely as you can get it, the um, the information out there, the better because I think the more people in the public that understand, have a better understanding of it, the, yep. the better people's experiences are going to be and their treatment if they need it, you know. That's right, yep. Yeah. Well, like... that, that's our goal at the clinic and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and others as well. So. Yeah. 
And we'll we'll put a link to your clinic in, in our show notes so people can find out more about your your work and, and yeah and, and as you. I say the, the very much the lead on the ground she's the clinic director is Dr Georgie Cornick White and yeah and she's to be commended for the work she's done in, in the clinic. Oh, very it's good. Really her um, output that's made it work. Excellent. Uh, so we might just pivot a little bit now and because of the current. Um, COVID-19 pandemic that we're seeing across the world. Uh, think yes. about how that is having an impact on the sorts of populations that you're looking at and some of the things that you might be <clears> seeing <throat> in some of your work that are arising currently. Yes, look, the social measures that are being used at the moment, of course, emphasise uh, distancing, um, you know, the quarantine, the self-isolation. It would seem quite likely that for some people they'll be experiencing loneliness for the first time. Certainly it's not a normal experience. What is potentially a little bit more worrying is for people who have pre-existing levels of loneliness and now facing these social distancing measures um, may find that their level of loneliness is really getting worse. And that's, that's a real concern. And especially if that is in the context of people with a psychotic disorder for whom, as you mentioned earlier, these are people who are often shunned, they're often discriminated against, they're often stereotyped as being dangerous, and so people avoid them, sadly, which is just appalling, but that seems to be what happens. And so you have to really worry about what the impact of the current social measures might be on um, people with that kind of experience and we need to really reach out and help all vulnerable groups at the moment um, because of, of COVID-19 and what's happening. Okay and uh, so what are some of the things that have been put in place or have been talked about to try and address that in, in this group? Uh, it, I'm not quite sure what you mean by in this group. Uh, so for people who um you know, might fall into the category of experiencing hallucinations. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Have, like, have we done anything? anything? <laughs> yeah. I don't think. I don't think at the moment there has been much targeted work for any group. There, there's been a lot of um, a lot of action and concern being expressed at the general level about the likely mental health consequences of the impact of COVID nineteen. But so far, I don't think that that is trickling down to um, specific actions for specific groups who may be at risk. Okay. And, and are you and your organisations advocating for anything in particular at the moment to be done? Or do you think there is um, anything that could be done differently for, for people who do experience hallucinations? Uh, the, tough question. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough question. The the general advice has to be the same in a sense as the rest of the general community because the driver is the same. The mm -hmm. social distancing measures are going to be particularly stressful for people who already are at risk in some other way, whether that is because they have a mental health problem or whether because they've already got pre-existing levels of loneliness. Yeah. So, so if you were to give people advice uh, who might be, you know, patients of the of the clinic, 
Uh, would it be to try and stay in touch with people through things like Zoom and FaceTime and these sort of things? Or is there are there any other strategies that they might have that don't involve those yeah, things? Yeah, look, the, all, all of the... All of the suggestions about keeping in touch are going to be helpful for everybody. I think in some ways, though, that highlights the issue that that tends to put the onus on the person who is affected. This is really a whole of community issue, though. So it's actually there's some responsibility on all of us, whether we are, you know, even if we're not lonely, even if we don't have a mental health problem ourselves, it's also incumbent on us as a society to reach out and help other people in our neighbourhood, in our community. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to be a, a two-way um, tack here to, to help combat the, the response to COVID-19. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it does, yeah. And I was just wondering, people who are engaged in therapy ongoing, um, are they able to still receive treatment? or are they having to receive it via an alternative route? Um, so most uh, clinical psychologists have been rapidly switching to telehealth, <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's certainly the case um, for Perth Voices Clinic, is that Georgie has been, uh, for those clients who, who can and for whom it is suitable, uh, she switched to a telehealth mode of delivery of, mm-hmm. of online therapy. And okay. So that's certainly still available. Do you think that's as effective, like as a form of treatment? Because there's a lot of research about telehealth out there and I know in some areas it's not the best, in some areas it seems to excel really well. So, yeah, I was wondering yep. if, it, if it is just as I effective. think the, the honest answer is at this point we don't know. Yep. What we will be able to do, though, through our clinic is we will have the data. And, of course, data is king in this world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so we will be able to do, um, as we do already, ongoing evaluation of our service. We will be able to evaluate for those clients that have been provided telehealth, whether there seems to be any difference in outcomes and if there is a difference for whom so that we can then help to work on providing the best level of care that we can. Mm -hmm. And just out of interest, is that tool, distress measurement tool being used by Perth Voices Clinic? Yes, we yeah. have um, ongoing evaluation studies at the moment. And mm-hmm. uh, to help us uh, with that, we have been using the tool. Yeah. And we do know from our colleagues in, in the UK that they're also interested as well in, mm-hmm. in the availability of this tool. But I guess the, the restrictions that have been imposed as a result of the pandemic lead to the potential for research being done that ethically normally wouldn't get approval, like forcing people to use telehealth, you know. Um. But, but it also <laughs> means that you can look at the difference between social isolation and loneliness because everyone's been forced to self-isolate, so then they're being put into that social isolation box and you can see, like, the proportion that are lonely versus not. Um, so lots of research ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I'd like to step in and suggest that I, I don't think that any clinician would be doing anything unethical in their clinical practice. I'm absolutely sure that uh, as good practising clinicians, they will be asking the client whether they wish to temporarily cease their therapy at the moment. Mm -hmm. The only option is to provide telehealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's it's always presented as an option. Yeah. 
Understood. So just, just uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, we weren't any misconceptions that, about how we work. <laughs> Yeah, it does create a bit of a natural experiment, doesn't it? That that ordinarily wouldn't happen. Yes, that that's that's certainly true. That mm. there will be some clients who, for various reasons, and it can be sometimes a very practical reason that they don't have the, the relevant equipment available, or they don't have a reliable internet provision. I mm. mean, or the cost of having computers and internet is beyond their reach, which is also a big problem for a lot of people in the community. Mm-hmm it means that access to telehealth is simply not available. So, yes, there are lots of issues that we're going to be grappling with now and into the future. Yeah. Well, I think we're probably fairly close to the end of our chat, Joe. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss before we finish up? I think we've had a really exciting and interesting um, journey of of, uh, conversation. Yeah. That's been fantastic. Yeah, it's been really good. I've I've learned a lot, I feel. I feel like we've covered oh, a lot of things and yeah, it's been very interesting. And Excellent. It, and it just highlights what a small world we live in, in that you've worked with Vera Morgan before <laughs> who, who joined our school. Uh, I, I, think I certainly hope that um, that will be an ongoing collaboration. It's been a joy to work with Vera and you're very lucky to have her. <laughs> yeah, we, we agree. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, thanks very much for your time today, Joe. That's a pleasure. Thank you. uh, Yeah, we look forward to seeing what what happens with your work going forward. Yep. Okay, good. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, everyone. All right, thanks. Okay. That was our conversation with Professor Joe Badcock. We have included links to the Perth Voices Clinic and places where you can read more about Joe's work in the show notes. As always, you can contact us via email at meaningofhealth@outlook.com and on Twitter at healthmeanswhat. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you our next episode soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.